All right, well, we'll go ahead and get started. Is it ready to uh, record, Chuck? Okay. All right. All right, so we are on to week two of the Disciplines of a Godly Man, and um, this week we're going to deal with the relationships in our lives. But before we get into lesson two, let's just pray, ask the Lord to help me to be able to speak well and effectively and help you guys to hear what the Lord uh, wants you to hear, what God wants to do in your heart. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the privilege, God, that we have uh, to gather this morning and to fellowship as men, God, men of God that, that love you and desire to be what you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that you would help me, God, to communicate clearly and effectively. And God, I pray, God, as your word is is taught, is spoken, Lord, I pray that your word would pierce our hearts and that you would challenge us. God, we want to grow. God, we want to be more like you. God, we want to be what you called us to be as men. Lord, I just thank you for these men that are here. God, I pray that you would open their hearts and their minds, God, to hear the things that you want them to hear. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, uh, just to kind of recap from last week, the idea of, of the of the book, uh, which I have in here, Disciplines of a Godly Man, uh, based, we're basing the, uh, the whole study, our six-week study on, on this book by R. R. Kent Hughes, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. And so uh, I kind of laid the groundwork for the, for the whole six weeks last week, talking about how in 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul tells Timothy to train yourself for godliness. And we studied how that word train has a picture of athletic, uh, is the picture of, of athletics and hard work and discipline and training. And so it was the idea that Paul is telling Timothy that godliness is going to come through spiritual sweat. And so I kind of talked about how sometimes in our, in, in our churches we can believe that we're going to grow spiritually just kind of like stumbling into it it's going to accidentally grow in christ going to going to just accidentally grow in christ by attending church by being around godly people by by just happenstance but throughout paul's letters in first timothy 4 7 in first corinthians 9 in hebrews chapter 12 we, we read those three sections that talked about the picture that spiritual growth that godliness that becoming who god's called you to be it, it takes effort on our part we're not, it's not, spiritual growth is not passive on our part and active on God's part. God does everything and we do nothing. Um, I, I kind of use the example, it would be like us sitting in a car in our garage and we know that we need to get to Walmart to buy groceries. But we're just going to sit in the car. And sitting in the car long enough is not going to get you to Walmart. You've got to put the key in the ignition. You've got to start the engine. You gotta put the car in reverse and you gotta go. You gotta back out and then you, you, you gotta go, right? You gotta, it takes effort on our part. And so we're foolish as men if we believe that spiritual growth is gonna come from any other way, uh, without our cooperation. But then I, I also, my goal was to bring a balance, a balance between, um, the idea of legalism and grace. And how sometimes in our life as Christians, we can think that if we work hard enough, if we work hard enough, we discipline ourselves, that that's going to keep, keep God happy with us. 
Or, it's, or, or the idea could be it's going to keep us right with God. So I'll, I wanted from the onset of this, met on this series of biblical discipline that we don't get into the ditch on that side. That we're not teaching a class about being spiritually disciplined because we're trying to maintain our Christianity. And so our, we're saved because of the blood of Jesus. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And as a result of that, our desires are changed. And so we want to pursue godliness. We want to pursue discipline in our life so that we can become more like Christ in our marriages, in our families, in our churches. And so that, that's kind of, that, that was the premise of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the first lesson, that it's going to take some spiritual work for us to grow in Christ. It's not going to be this passive thing. We don't become like Christ by getting zapped by the Holy Ghost service after service. It takes the discipline, daily devotion to pursuing godliness, to becoming like Christ, to spending time in God's word, in prayer, in fellowship. You know, this is a part of it. This is you guys getting up when my alarm went off at 515. It's another reminder. I was just like, oh, my goodness, I was up till 1030. Lord, help me to help me to do this. You know, that that's that discipline. You, know, you guys are doing that. This is. You know, I'm preaching to to the choir here, to a bunch of guys who got up early to come to listen to God's word taught. And so, but that's what it takes. The discipline, consistent decisions in our life that go in the, that are going in the direction of godliness that God uses to help us to grow in Christ. So that was the idea of the first week. This week, this lesson is going to be on the relationships in a man's life. And then next week, Pastor Derek's going to pick up and do the next two lessons, and then Pastor Matt will close it out. But relationships in a man's life. Of course, this is all about men. And so just a general idea. I kind of looked at the notes in the book, and basically there's four areas that we're going to deal with. And all four areas were um, individual chapters. So we could, we could, this, class, this class could have been 20 weeks because there's a lot of different chapters, but we're, we're combining them and making it six weeks. So we're taking four chapters worth of material. I'll try to take four chapters worth of material, make it into one. So uh, hopefully you'll appreciate my strategy. Uh, but basically there's three realms. There's three realms of relationships in, in every man's life. And you're either, you, you can be, have influence and leadership in all three realms at one time, or you could be in a stage in your life where you have influence in two, or you have influence in one. Uh, and those three realms are marriage, fatherhood, and friendships. Marriage, fatherhood, and friendships. And so, everybody's got friends, right? Whether you're married or you have kids, you may not be married, you may not have kids, but you, you, you know, you might, you've got friends, at least one friend. It might be your dog, but you got at least one friend. And some of you, you got friends and you're married. So that means you got influence in, in another area of your life. And some of you, you're married with kids and friends. And that, that's my category. I, I've got influence in all three realms. I got a, a wife I've been married to for 13 years. I've got three kids and I've got Lots of friends, lots of people that, that I'm in relationship with. And so there's, er, there's areas of influence and leadership that God has given me, responsibilities that God has given me in all three realms. And so for me to be effective as in the ways that God's called me to lead, it's going to take discipline on my part to take those realms of influence serious. And so what I want to do in, in all three realms 
I want to look at what our responsibilities are. And a, a lot of this is things we've already heard, but I, I just want to touch on them from, 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 uh, from a scripture. What does God's word say our responsibility is in each realm? So let's look at the realm of marriage first. This is Ephesians 5. Now, for those of you who are not married, this may not touch your realm of influence at the moment, but if you're single, you probably eventually want to get married. Uh, and so uh, this is what God's word says about marriage. So Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, this is the responsibility, the ultimate responsibility that we have as husbands in the life of our wife. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does his church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each, of, each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Hi, there is so much in those verses. You know, I, when I think about my responsibility as a husband, I mean, th- these, these verses right here summarize what the heart of our responsibilities are. So let's look back, let's look back at, at these verses. Verse 25, husbands, how should we love our wives? As Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. So verse 25 sets the foundation for how husbands should love their wives. And it's just like Christ loved the church. So when we think, husbands, how should we love our wives? Well, what did Christ do for for his bride, for his church? He laid down his life. He gave his all for his bride. He laid his, he, he shed his very blood on the cross and sacrificed his life for his bride. And so that's the foundational view of our responsibility and our leadership in our wife's life is that we should lay down our life on a daily basis. And I mean, obviously, we're not shedding our blood every day for a wife. Uh, that's not what the picture is. It's, it's the heart. It's the heart attitude. It's the total commitment Christ had to even go to the depth of the cross and death for his wife. And that's the picture of our heart and our attitude towards our wives, that even on the bad days, our desire and our responsibility is to sacrifice our very life for our wives. You know, and we do that in many different ways. We do it by going to work. But we do it by being diligent to provide for her and for our family. That's laying down your life. That's sacrificing for your wife. That's loving her like Christ loved the church. We do it by, we do it by helping out around the house. We do it by doing the dishes. You know, we do it by helping her with the clothes. We do it by disciplining the children. We, we do it in so many ways. We, we do it by speaking kind to her. We do it by being patient with her. We lay down a life for our wife by, 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 by speaking words of encouragement and life to her. All these different ways of, of sacrificing our desires, our will, what we want. You know, sometimes we go to work, come home, 
we're tired, we're overwhelmed, we want to sit on the couch, we want the controller, we want to eat, and we want to just do whatever we want to do, veg out, and then go to bed and start the next day. And so many times we can fall into that pattern. But our responsibility is to every day to love our wife, to prefer her needs, her desires. What does she need? What does she want? Because Jesus set the, set the precedence there. Husbands, love your wives. He is our model. He is who we look to as to how we're to treat our wives. You know, marriage is not about us. It's not, marriage is not about fulfilling our sexual needs. It's not, it's not about fulfilling what, what, what we want. Marriage for us as husbands is about our wives. Period. We, we, God's given us a wife so that we can, we can spend our entire life, our entire life meeting her needs, loving her, cherishing her, honoring her. God's given us the opportunity to give 100% of who we are to our wives on a daily basis. And that's the model and the picture that Christ gave us when he gave his life for us as his bride. And now let's continue on with our responsibility. If that wasn't heavy enough, (laughs) this next section, I mean, it's just an amazing, I feel so, as I was reading it just a few minutes ago, I'm just, I feel so burdened in my heart with my responsibility towards my wife when I think about it. Lord, help me, help us. Verse 25, uh, verse 26. So here's the practical, here's some more of the practical side of that responsibility. That he, speaking of us, speaking of what Christ does, he's our model, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So, so th- this is another aspect of our responsibility. Our responsibility as husbands is to be spiritual leaders in our homes. And so just as Christ is the one who sanctifies us, Christ sanctifies us through His Word. He is the one that helps us to become more and more like Him. As we are, are putting in the spiritual sweat and effort of pursuing Him, He's the one who makes us more like Himself and sanctifies us through His Word. Where we're called, as husbands, and with Christ as a model, to, to, to sanctify our, our wife through the Word of God. God. Jesus is the one who sanctifies her, but we, He uses us to be the spiritual leaders, to continually present before our wife the Word of God. So how do we do that? Well, one easy way is we, we bring them to church. We get up out of bed in the mornings, and we, are the, we, we wake up our children. We, we, we wake up our wife. And we, we're excited about coming to church. We're not the one that, that you get, has to be drugged out of bed, like i got to drag my kids out of bed every morning to go to school. No, we're up. We're ready. We're excited. We're the spiritual leader, and we bring our family to church. That's that's encouraging your wife to be sanctified by God's word. And and of course, another way, very practical way, is that we're reading the Bible to our wife. We're opening the Scripture. Doesn't mean that you gotta do an exposition or explanation or sermon to your wife when you read the Bible. It means you gotta open it. Just read it. If it means you're, you're reading one chapter in the book of John or in Ephesians or you're reading some of the Psalms or Proverbs, it's just the fact that you have the time where you're opening the Bible, it's you and your wife, and you're doing what Ephesians 5.26 says, washing her with the water of the Word of God. Her mind is being washed with the water of God's Word. That's 
that's a primary responsibility that we have. And and and, and this this next section, that verse 27, it even amps it up even further and shows you why we have to lead them spiritually. Why why we have to look at our responsibility in the same way that Christ looked at his. Verse 27. So that we wash their minds with the word of God. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy without blemish. And verse 28 says in the same way. In that same way husbands love your wives. Right? So God in a unique in a unique way has given us as husbands a responsibility to present our wives, to be ready for our wives to be presented to God, holy without spot or blemish. You think, wait a minute, that's God's job. God's the only one that can present somebody spotless and holy without blemish. Yes, you're right about that. But he's given us the responsibility to be a part of that process as husbands. We have a unique ability and responsibility to have that role in in our wives' lives. Listen, guys, women were designed by God to follow. Now, I know in the in the feminist movement from the 60s and 70s that has impacted our country in so many ways where men uh, are, you know, our tendency is to be passive. And so women have had to rise up and take leadership roles because men struggle to lead in any real strong way. But God designed a woman to follow and to love to follow her husband. And so it is natural for a woman to want to follow your lead. God put it in her to want to do that. So whenever we lead her spiritually and we take that initiative to be the spiritual head, to be the spiritual leader, to serve her as Christ serves the church, she is gonna, she's, she's going to be overjoyed and overwhelmed to see that effort and that initiative on your part. If, if all you do is open the Bible and read one scripture to her every day, and you talk to, and you talk about what that scripture means, and and you and you pray about that scripture. If you do that every every day in your wife's life, she will be overjoyed at just that. Just do that and do the dishes. You'll have a great married life. <laughs> things things will be great for you. Um, it's such a it's such a heavy responsibility. When when I when when I, when I do weddings, I scare half the men that I do their wedding ceremonies because I, I I go to this section in Ephesians five and six and I bring the weight. I'm looking at that young guy, and all he's thinking about is that honeymoon bed. He's thinking, let me out of this room so I can get to that hotel, because I've been waiting for so long, right? And and I like to bring that sense of seriousness. No, look at what your responsibility is. God, God wants you to be a part of the process <clears throat> of sanctifying and cleansing your wife so that she can be presented before the Father without spot or blemish. Wow, that's 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 so convicting in my life. Lord, help me, help me in that area. We need lots of help. So in that same way, verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so so that's the picture of our main responsibility is in our is in our marriages. That's one realm that God has given us responsibility in. And and I just wanted to bring that big general picture. There's lots of nuts and bolts. Obviously this is not a marriage uh Bible study on how we should be godly husbands, but just want to bring a general picture. That 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 is our main 
area of responsibility as husbands, to be the spiritual leaders and to be the servant leaders of our home, the servant leaders and the spiritual leaders, that we seek to serve the needs of our wives and we seek to lead them spiritually. Those are the two main roles. And so now let's look to fatherhood. What is our role? So some of you, you're, you're, you're married here, and some of you are fathers. Some of you are fathers and you're not married. And, and you, you, you are in this, you, you, you have influence in this realm of fatherhood. Let's, let's look at what our responsibilities are as fathers. Proverbs 22.6. This is a famous scripture here. Um, we really don't need to turn to it, but we all know it. Train up a child. In the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And then, um, well, let, let's just talk about this, and then we'll go to the second scripture. But so, Proverbs twenty-two six. What's our main responsibility as fathers? It's to train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. So our main responsibility is to train our children, right? It's to train them towards godliness, to train them to know Christ, to love Christ, or to train them in the area of discipline and obedience and uh, God's called children to obey their parents. And, th- and if they obey their parents, there's a promise of long life. So we're trying to make sure our kids live a long life. That's why we want them to, o- to obey us, right? Uh, sometimes we, f- we, f- we feel like when they don't obey, we may cut their life short. <laughs> and so you've got to remind them that if you want to live long, you need to obey me. Um, but our, well, our main responsibility, if I could, to, could distill down to what the main responsibility of a parent is, it's to teach our children the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it's all boiled down into one message, if you taught your kid to obey, if you taught your kid skills in life, and you taught them, you know, great pointers about how to have a successful life, but they didn't know Jesus, and you never taught them the gospel, then all the other lessons you taught them would ultimately be meaningless at the end of the day. So the number one responsibility is to train up a child in the way he should go. And we know the way that everyone should go is in the direction of God, is towards Christ, is, is, to, is towards the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So that's the primary function. But there's a unique twist here to this scripture in Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. And in the original languages, in the Hebrew here, uh, there's an emphasis given in the, in, in the phrase, in the way he should go. And, and so... Other translations render it in, in such a way that gives the idea that there is a unique bend that every child has. And we know that to be the case because all of us have a unique gifting and calling by God that he's given us. Something that we're naturally good at. Something that God's given us a passion for. So I think there's a twofold purpose and responsibility that we all have as fathers. Teach our kids the gospel and spend enough, and secondly, spend enough time with our kids that we know who they are, we know what their giftings are, and we train them up and point them like arrows in that direction. I think those are our two main responsibilities. So if, if, if we do that, if we teach them the gospel and we're involved in their lives enough, that means that we're not vegging out on the couch every day, that we're actually spending time. You know, there's studies that are shown that fathers spend, on average, like 45 seconds a day with their kids. You know, 50 seconds, you know, a minute. It's un- when, when I read those studies, I start thinking, is that what I do? You know, and so I, I, I intentionally, you know, i got to spend more than 45 seconds of time with my kids, eye-to-eye communication. 
And when I would first hear those studies, I think, well, that's not possible. But then I would think back to my interaction with my kids. It's talking about real interaction. We don't spend more than about a minute of real interaction per day with our kids, eye-to-eye communication. And it can be easily done that we do that because we pick them up from school. We get busy. They're doing their homework. They're playing with their toys, with their video games. And you just, you're doing supper, you're distracted, you're doing your stuff, your responsibilities, you're doing the dishes for your wife because you're, you're looking forward to, the, to, the, to, to your bedroom time later on, you're preparing the stage, right? So you're doing all those things and the next thing you know it's bedtime, alright kids, let's go to bed. And without knowing it, you, you realize maybe I didn't spend more than 45 seconds of connection with my kids. It's easy to, to do that. So we have to make it a priority. We gotta know our kids. Who are our children? What are, they, what are their giftings? What are their responsibilities? What has God called them to be? What are their passions? You know, right now, Joel's passion, he's 11 years old, is to be an NBA basketball player. <laughs> right? He wants to be just like Steph Curry. And he just, he's like, Daddy, I just, I just, that's what I want to be. You know, I, I remember I had wrote a blog post a couple of years ago, so when Joel was nine, and I talked about, I wrote the blog post because of, a conversation I had with Joel. And so one of the, I don't know, somewhere Joel hold me, heard me tell a story about how I felt called to preach when I was 12 years old. First time in my bed in Chack Bay, Louisiana, I'm crying tears, thinking about a church that I know is struggling at 12 years old. And I prayed to, my, prayed to God, Lord, make me a pastor so I can pastor that church. And I remember crying at 12, over that reason. That was the first time I had an inclination in my heart to be a pastor. And then I went outside and played baseball, right? I went out and did what 12-year-olds do. So I was telling that story to Joel. So Joel, one day, we're in the car, me and my wife and Joel. And Joel says, Daddy, he said, how do you think God's going to tell me what I'm called to do? You know, like you felt called at 12. I said, well, Joel, and I'm getting real serious. Like, this is a great question from a nine-year-old, you know? So I start talking to him about that, and I reiterated that story when, about, about when I was 12. And in all seriousness, Joel said, I'm just so frustrated right now. And I was like, well, well why? He said, because I feel like, I feel like that, that God's not going to give me a vision like what you had. I said, well, what, what do you think is going to happen? He said, well, do you think God's going to give me a vision of making a half-court shot or something? You know, like, like he, he is waiting for this vision. He wants to have this idea like that I had when I was 12. And he said, I'm just so frustrated. I said, Joel, it's going to be okay. God's going to show you. You know, it's no, it's no big deal. You're going to figure it out. Now, if you know Joel, Joel's decently talented at, at basketball. You know, he's athletic. But he's probably not going to get a scholarship to play college ball, you know. I mean, just look at me. <laughs> it just might not happen. Um, but he is naturally gifted at music. Like, I didn't have to teach him to play music. He taught him. He has basically taught himself. He can play piano. He can play acoustic guitar. He can play drums. Um, he could. He's learning the trumpet, like, in band. He's playing percussion in band, but he plays messes with the trumpet after band practice because he wants to try to learn it. And he's actually, over the course of two or three months, the band instructor telling me, you might want to buy him a trumpet. He's learning how to play trumpet. He just It's a natural gifting. He just knows music. He can play it by ear. He can, he can hear a song on the radio, go home, go on the keyboard, and pick it out and play it and sing it on key and play it. It's just, I didn't teach that. I can't sing. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, right? 
Now, so I'd be foolish if I didn't recognize that gifting. So what do we do? Well, we gave him guitar lessons. We paid $65 a month for about two years. Give him lessons. Let him learn some structure. We're putting him in band. So what is God going to call Joel to do specifically? I have no idea. My inclination is it's going to be something in music, something in ministry in that area. It could be something different. But at least I know for the rest of his life, he's going to be playing music if he desires to do that. So that's what I'm saying, Proverbs 20. I think that it's a double meaning there. We train them up in the gospel and we spend enough time with our kids to know who they are and we train them up in that gifting. Um, so Ephesians 6, 4. Let's go quickly. I'm taking a little too longer on this. Well, it's only, it's only 7.30. It's supposed to be 7 to 8, right? You guys, are you guys hanging tight here? All right, all right, all right. Let's go to uh, Ephesians 6. Here's another area of responsibility that we have as fathers. Ephesians 6, 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of God. So I think another area of responsibility is that fathers, our responsibility is to not provoke our children to anger. So what, what does that mean? I think it means a lot of things. Um, but primarily, I think it means that we as fathers, that we're careful with the way we communicate to our children. You know, as fathers, we can get frustrated really easy. And so I think we have a responsibility to guard our tongue. We're supposed to guard our tongue in every area of our life. But our children are so unique and precious. And they're so sensitive in their heart. You know, I can crush my kids with my words quicker than anybody can. You know, I think of, I mean, to my shame... I think of times in my life with my children, with my daughter, and with, with my two, well, not with Reagan, she's only three, but with my nine-year-old daughter and with my son, Joel, times that I have been harsh with my words, been impatient, been angry at them, and spoken harshly. And we can have a way that we can stir up anger in the hearts of our kids without, you know, in ways that should not be there. Now, are they going to be angry at us because we tell them, what they should do and they don't want to do it. Hey, we can't avoid that. They can be angry all day long. But you disobey, you get consequences, you can be angry, go in your room and cry. But whenever, because of my anger, I make them angry. Because I lash out and I make them angry. It's our responsibility to guard that. To not allow ourselves to lose sight of the big picture. That they're children and that our responsibility is to discipline them in love. We can be firm and we can... Lay down the rules, but we can do it in a way that is respectful, that is clothed with love, and that doesn't hurt or break their spirit. And so I think those are the two main responsibilities that I wanted to cover on the, in, in the realm of, fa- of fatherhood. Now let, let, let's look at the realm of friendships. Uh, Proverbs 17:17. 17, 17. Now, maybe you're not married and maybe you, you don't have kids, but you should at least have a couple of friends, right? Maybe maybe just one. And if you have one, that better be the best friend you have on earth because you just you, you got all your time to devote to this one friend. So even if you only have one friend, this applies to your life. Proverbs 17, 17, famous scripture here. It says, A friend loves at all time, and a brother is born for adversity. And so the picture there about what is our responsibility as friends, it's, it's that, that when I think about a friend... I think about somebody who is born for adversity. 
a friend and a brother, a brother in Christ, we are born for times of adversity. And so when we're going through difficult times, we're going through, through struggles, that's when, that's when our friends step up. Our friends don't spread like roaches when the light comes on whenever we're going through challenges, right? Our friends, we, our responsibility, my responsibility to my friends is that whenever difficulties come, that I'm there. They can count on me. They can count on my prayers. They can count on my phone calls, on my texts. They can count on me to walk them through the situations that they're going through. That's what a, that's what a friend does. A friend loves at all times. You know, a friend a friend loves when whenever you know uh, your friend's going through sickness. A friend loves whenever your friend's going through financial troubles. A friend loves whenever that friend is going through through sinful consequences. You know, I think so many times one thing that one area that challenges friendships is whenever our friend, you know, we're all brothers in Christ, right? So typically speaking, our closest friends are the ones that are Christians. Now, some of us have non-Christian friends, and when you have a non-Christian friend, the main objective is to is to is to hopefully encourage them to become a brother in Christ. That's that's why God would place a non-Christian friend in your life as a Christian is to evangelize that non-Christian friend. Um, but as brothers in Christ, one of the challenges to friendship, genuine friendship, is when our brother sins. And so what do we do with that? Typically speaking, or, or I, wouldn't say t- I wouldn't say typically because it doesn't always happen like this, but a lot of the times we, we, we let them go and we push them away. And it's hard for us to relate to them. And there can be various reasons. And there's so many different circumstances. And, maybe you know, we could be genuinely hurt by their sin and what they've caused. And, it, and they've let us down. And so there could be a season where we're kind of separated from them because it's hard to be close. And that's natural. But eventually, a friend loves at all times. A friend is there for that person. And so this area of friendship, I think Galatians, let's turn to Galatians chapter 6. This is one of my favorite sections in the whole New Testament. Um, it talks about how um, friends should should love, how brothers in Christ should love when it comes to the area of sin, when, when a brother is caught in, in, in a sin. It says in Galatians 6, 1, we're going to read a few verses here. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so that covers them all, any transgression, you who are spiritual, what should you do? Restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and and this his reason. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay, so this section there, the the first. The first three verses are so powerful. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so there's no type of sin that anybody could, any one of our friends or brothers in Christ could walk in that should prevent us from loving them. There's, there, there's none. I don't care if it's pornography, if it's adultery, if it's, if it's murder. One of our friends gets angry. Our brothers in Christ gets angry and acts out in anger and kills somebody. 
As difficult, that it, as difficult as that is, Scripture says any transgression. So the, that means the list is endless. So that means that it may be a while before we, we want to go visit them in prison, but we need to go visit them in prison. We need, we need, we need to go and pursue them. I and mean, that's what Scripture says. If any, brothers, if anyone is caught in any, any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, bearing one, bearing one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so that's the picture that a friend loves at all times. No matter what the sin, no matter what the failure, no matter if they've disappointed you. And look, I understand that there's some friendships in your life that, that, that may end because of situations like that. Because of sin against you personally. You know, maybe they've, they sinned against you or your spouse and there's, there's reasons why maybe some friendships won't work and won't move on. But generally speaking, the principle should be that when your brother sins, because we're spiritual, because we claim to be spiritual and we love Christ, that we should pursue them. We should say, brother, how can I help you? How can I help you get out of that ditch? I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to make you think I'm better than you because Scripture says that if I do that, understand you're going to be tempted also. You could, you could fall just as easily as I could fall just as easily as, as you did. And so I'm going to bear your burden. And the picture of bearing that burden, when you study that out, it's the idea of, of you know, like when you take a saddle for a horse. You know, a saddle is a heavy thing, a leather saddle, and you, you throw it onto the horse. That's the picture of what it means to bear someone's burden, that you, you are taking. They're, they're throwing their burdens onto you because they are overwhelmed. It's a heavy load that is weighing them down. And you ask them, hey, put it on me. Throw that burden on me. I'm going to carry it for you. That's what it means to be a friend that loves at all times. In sin, in disappointment, in failure, in suffering, in sorrow, a friend loves at all times. So those are the, those are the three realms of responsibility. Marriage, fatherhood, and friendships. And so I just want to say this. Our relationships as men are so important in our life. There's not a day in our life that we are not interacting in one of these ways, especially as married men with kids and, and friends, if, we, if, you're, if you're involved in all three realms. There's not a day that goes by where we're not interacting some way in all three of these areas. And so our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity and maturing in Christ is so centered around uh, our, us disciplining ourselves towards godliness in all three of these areas. Now, the last realm that I want to deal with, which was in the book, and I set it up like this because I feel like this last area is the biggest area, the biggest hindrance to us being effective in these three areas, marriage, fatherhood, and friendships, and it's the area of sexual purity. This is a realm of our relationships. This is a realm in our life that in a man's life is the single biggest area that will zap your effectiveness, that will make you powerless in your life. It's the area of sexual purity. If you walk in sexual immorality in your life, you will be, ineff- you, you will be ineffective in your marriage as a father and as a friend. You will be weak and powerless. You will feel like you have no strength or ability to have any impact or leadership. Think about it. You're struggling with sexual sin. Are you going to open that Bible with, with your wife? You're, you're going to feel like, I can't do that. There's no way. 
I can open my Bible with my wife. You're going to be so filled with shame and guilt that you're going to feel like I cannot lead spiritually. It's going to be the same area with your kids. You're going to feel like you can't lead them well because I have this, I have this glaring problem in my life. And then in the area of friendships, what do we do when we struggle with sexual sin? We push, we push our friends away. We say, I just got to get away from them because they're eventually going to find out. If I get too close to them, they're going to figure something out. They're going to be able to tell that something's wrong, wrong with me. I'm not what I used to be. I'm not in, interacting like I used to be. And so sexual sin, it's kind of like the idea of an oil leak in a car engine. A slow oil leak, not a fast one. But a slow oil leak in a car engine that, that, that you don't know about. You don't know that you're leaking oil. That's what sexual sin is like in a man's life. You're, you got a slow oil leak and you're going along pretty good, but it's a slow fade. It's a slow drip. And eventually, you're going to burn out. Eventually, that engine's going to stop up. It's going to block up. It's going to burn out. And eventually, the car's going to break down. And the same is true in our life. If we continue in sexual immorality in our life in any area, whether it's pornography, whether it's, whether it's adultery with a woman, whether any area of sexual sin, it's like an oil leak in your life. It's like, a, it's like all the spiritual life and vitality, like, like oil is the life to the engine. It's like the spiritual life and vitality. The blood of your spiritual life is draining out day by day, moment by moment, when that unconfessed, unrepented sin is still in your heart. And your spiritual life and your vitality. You go to push the gas to lead spiritually. You go to be an engaged father. You, you go to connect with your friends and brothers in Christ. And there's no power there. There's no gas. You press the accelerator and it's like revving it and nothing's going on. You guys, you guys ever experienced that? Yeah, I've, I've, there with, I have experienced that in my life as a man. There's no power. And so, this is a subject you guys all know about. I think... Probably all of you have been in the Conqueror series. Who's been in the Conqueror series here? Most of you guys have been in, in, in the Conqueror series. So, you know, you go through the Conqueror series, which is a series specifically geared towards helping men with addiction to sexual sin. And we know all the nuts and bolts, the things that you need to do. You need to be accountable. You need to put on filters on your smartphones and on your laptops. You need to be honest with your wife. You need to, you just, you need to be in relationship with brothers in Christ. You, you need to do all these different practical things, right, that will help you to get free from an addiction to sexual sin. And we could go over all those lists, but that's not what this class is all about, right? And so I want to give basically, I think, two main reasons why, two main reasons why, we should view sexual sin completely different. I want to look at Job 31. Job 31. I think sometimes we can lose sight of these, of these things when it comes to the area of sexual sin and the purity. Because we can kind of get into the nuts and bolts. And we feel like, man, i got to do all these things to stay sexually pure. And I think if we cannot lose sight of these two big pictures here of what I'm about to say, it will help us in the long run to be free from sexual sin. Job 31, starting in verse 1, says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look lustfully upon a young woman. What would be my portion from God and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers 
of, of sin. And in verse 4, Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to sin, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step turned aside from the way and my heart is gone after my eyes, that's what Job said there, I make a covenant with my eyes. If my heart is gone after my eyes and in any spot is stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. And let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. And so, verse 4 is the key here. Job 31.4. So he makes the covenant with his eyes. I'm not going to look lustfully upon a a young woman, but verse 4. This is the first big picture here. Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? I think that one reality right there, the fact that God sees all and knows all my steps. He's with me in the bathroom. He's with me in the closet. He's with me in my car. He's with me everywhere I go. You know, I think there's this idea about God's presence. We've got to get into God's presence. We've got to worship Him and, and enter our way into God's presence. You know, as a believer, God lives on the inside of you. His Spirit, the Spirit of the Almighty, Holy God, dwells on the inside of you as a Christian. So that means God's presence never leaves you. God's presence is not something that you go to. God's presence is something you become aware of. Right? He's always with us. So... When we don't feel His presence, it's because we're not aware of it. Because it's always there. God is always there. And what happens is when we're in worship times, or we're in times by ourselves of prayer and worship, what happens is when we say we feel God's presence, it's more, can be better defined as we are aware of His presence more. We have stripped away the things of this world, and our mind is focused solely on God. So we are aware that He is with us. And so that reality right there, that God is with us, Always, every second of every day, he knows, he sees. Man, that should bring the fear of the Lord in your life more than anything. To know that God sees and God knows. Secondly, what's, what's, gonna, what's another way, another thought that's going to help us stay disciplined in our, in our fight against sexual sin? It's this. Sexual immorality... We need to always remember that the consequences for sexual sin are real, they're devastating, and they have lasting impact. That's the second reason. (coughs) Sexual sin, the consequences are real, devastating, and have lasting impact. So firstly, God sees everything and God knows everything and should cause us to fear Him. And secondly, the consequences of sexual sin, they're devastating. They have lasting impact. And in closing, I just want to do something. I, I don't know. Just, I just want to read this. I just want to read Scripture. And I want us to have a sobering view of the consequences of sin, consequences of sexual sin. And we're, we're going to read Proverbs 5, a little bit of Proverbs 6, and we're going to read Proverbs 7. It's going to be on the screen here if you don't have your Bible so you can read along. But let's just read these Scriptures. These are some very compelling scriptures that show us the reality of the consequences of sexual sin. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. 
that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. I just want to stop right there for a second. This is a picture not just of adultery with an individual woman, but it's a picture of sexual sin as a whole. It's not just an adulterer, uh, an incident with a woman. It's the picture of sexual sin as a whole. And did you notice? Did you notice verse 10? Verse 9, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. That's that picture of power. What does sexual sin do? It drains you. Just like I said, oil leak from a car. It drains you of your power. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. That's a picture of marriage of the marriage bed. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times. Be intoxicated always in her love. It's a beautiful picture. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies, men, for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly he is led astray. Let's go to chapter 6, verse 20 through 35. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always and tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. That's what, God, God's, word, that's what God's word does. It's always with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you. What's a disciplined life do? It preserves you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. Basically saying there, a man's reduced to a loaf of bread. But a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. 
None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped. Uh, will not be wiped. Uh, 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 uh not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will not accept he will accept no compensation. A man that's been sinned against, you can't pay him off. He will refuse you through though you multiply gifts. Now let's look at chapter seven. It says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you. What what, what do these things do? God's word do? It keeps you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress. With her smooth words. I just, that picture there, we read it three different times. Sexual sin. The adulterous, the adulterous woman, sexual sin, it, it's, it's smooth talking and it sounds good. For at the window of my house, she says, I have looked out through my lattice and I've seen among the simple. I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. And behold, a woman meets him. Dressed as a prostitute, wildly of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. It's kind of a picture of sexual temptation. It's everywhere today. It's everywhere. It's in the, it's, it's in the street. It's at home. It's in the market. It's at every corner. Everywhere we look, sexual temptation lies in wait to seize him and kiss him. With bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. So it's sexual sin that is seeking you eagerly to destroy your life. And I found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, covered linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with with love, for my husband is not home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, as that smooth speech again, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. As a stag is caught fast. You know what that picture is? It's like a sheep going to the slaughter. They just don't, don't even know what's going on and all, all of a sudden, they're dead. Till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is away to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Wow. It's pretty heavy. May we never forget that. 
God sees all. He knows all. We should fear Him because we know He sees everything that we do. And sexual sin, sin of every kind, but particularly sexual sin has a way crippling a man and can ultimately destroy a man's life. You know, I, we, we've all seen examples of men in our life, great men, men of, men of God, preachers, pastors, have great influence. We've seen it throughout, throughout the decades, throughout the centuries, been brought low because of sexual sin. All their influence, all the authority and power that God's given them to be somebody who influences and teaches God's Word, it's all stripped away. They lose the respect of their church, of the church community as a whole. If they're a prominent pastor of, of the church as a whole around the world, they lose the respect of their wife, of their children. They're brought low. They're, they're, they become a shell of the man that they used to be because of sexual sin. And none of it is worth it. None of it is worth it. So these are the realms of relationship in our life. Our marriage, our fatherhood, our children, and our friendships. And God's given us influence in all three of those areas. And if we're going to be effective, we're going to have to discipline ourselves to be what God's called us to be in those areas. To take God's Word serious. Take our responsibility serious. And to understand, lastly, that this area of sexual sin has always been and will always be one of the greatest temptations in your life and in my life. And we can never take it lightly. We can never think that we've got it whooped. You can be 85 years old, 90 years old, and still have an eye for sexual sin. You can be 90 years old and still want to look at pornography because you have easy access to it. It doesn't matter how young or how old. And so, men, I just want to challenge you. God, you know, by God's grace, we can... We can we can discipline ourselves in this area. By God's grace, we can put in the effort to guard our, our eyes and our hearts against sexual sin. It's only by God's strength. And the fact that we desire to do it, is an ev- the fact that we desire to walk in purity is an evidence of God's grace in our heart. So I just want to encourage you, what, whatever area of struggle you are in, in this area specifically, in the area of sexual purity, I just want to tell you that there's help. There's help. You can get help. Find a brother in Christ. Find somebody that's going to help you to walk through that. And get free from it. Don't stay there. Don't stay there. Don't live there. Father, I just thank you this morning. I thank you for your word that challenges us. God, may we never ignore your word. God, may we be men of integrity and character. God, I just ask that you'd help us in all of these areas, all four of these areas, in our marriage and raising our kids and with our friends. And God, help us to be men of purity, to guard our eyes, to guard our hearts. God, may we not ignore the clear warnings of Scripture, of the weight of the consequences of sexual sin. God, may we humble ourselves daily before Your throne and say, God, here here I am. Take my heart. Purify it. I submit to You today. God, may we do that every day and walk humbly before you. God, thank you for these men. Lord, strengthen them for the rest of their day. And God, I I pray specifically about this Easter egg outreach that we're about to have this afternoon. God, I pray that you will bring in people from everywhere in this community. People that don't know you. That don't know the gospel, God. And they're going to come and they're going to get an invitation to the church. They're going to see the the depiction of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as they drive onto our property. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit in every, in every part and 
in, in, in every element of this outreach that they will, that your Holy Spirit will touch their heart and they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, that, that is our prayer. We thank you for today in Jesus name. Amen. 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 All right, you guys, we'll see you. We'll see you next week. Pastor Derek will pick up next week's lesson.